You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Episode 139 of that one time on tour is brought to you by Radio Cake Records. Radio Cake Records is an indie record label dedicated to releasing music they love made by people they love. The label was founded two years ago by a badass brown girl named Nikosha Orchard. Nikosha grew up listening to punk rock and always dreamt of owning her own label. Now a mom in her 40s, she used her midlife crisis as a catalyst to finally build a label and release a ton of music from some amazing indie rock bands and artists. For more information on Radio Cake Records, you can check them out at RadioCakeRecords.com. Now here it is, Radio Cake Records recording artist Barefoot Engineering with their new single, Now in Session.
Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together, we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Hi, this is Aaron from Fat Records, and you're listening to That One Time on Tour. Run for the road, cause it's going on and on. We'll be driving through the darkest night until the break of dawn. We'll be heading for the cities, another show for us to play. To get back in the van, tomorrow we'll do it. We'll do it all again. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. What is going on? As always, this is Chris Swinney, and I am your host for that one time on tour. If this is your first time joining me, this is my podcast where I get to sit down with somebody in or around the entertainment industry and have a stellar conversation. I hope you are all doing well out there and staying safe and healthy during the pandemic. Here in Indiana, where I live, COVID seems to be spiraling out of control. Cases are crazy on the rise, and uh, my music students have been dropping like flies. I was so excited when I finally got to go back to work, but it seems like my return has been short-lived. I have a feeling uh, that we may all be heading back into a lockdown soon. I don't know what you guys think. You know, let me know if you think I'm crazy, but it seems like that's going to happen. A lot of my friends in England and Australia and different places are on lockdown. Canada is on lockdown. So uh, here's to hoping it doesn't happen to us, but it's not looking too good. So, but even though 2021 seems a lot like its predecessor, there are good things to talk about. Like the episode you are currently listening to, it's a really good one. Today on the program, I had the honor of chatting with co-founder and co-owner of Fat Records, Miss Erin Burkett. Uh, Fat Records has always meant so much to me and like my musical upbringing. It was so great to converse with Erin and pick her brain about all kinds of stuff. We talked about everything under the sun, uh, including but not limited to... How she got into punk rock, forming the label, the glory days that were the 90s, parenting, and how your band can get signed to Fat Records. Uh, We talked about all kinds of stuff. It's it's awesome. I had so much fun with this episode, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. And just like with last week's episode with Kent, this episode coincides with our new Fat Records contest. I want to congratulate Crystal Drever or Drever, I don't I think I'm not sure which one that is, but Crystal from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, for winning the first contest. So give it up for Crystal. Thank you so much. I will be shipping out your prize shortly. 
If you want to be eligible for our current new Fat Records contest, all you have to do is subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or rate us on Stitcher, or hit a, a follow or like or a subscribe or whatever, wherever you listen. I know there's tons of places you can listen. All you have to do is just one of those things. And then you head on over to our website, TOTOTpodcast.com, and sign up for our mailing list. And that's it. The winner for this contest will be announced this Saturday, January 16th, on our Instagram and Facebook. So do not miss it. And if you're not following us on there, it's at TOTOT Podcast. Okay, so before I get into my conversation with Aaron, I need to pay some bills like I always do. Had a great sponsor for this episode, Radio Cake Records. You can check out all of their artists and all of their cool merch and everything at RadioCakeRecords.com. My buddy Gary over at PartsCasterConcierge.com. He builds guitars. He built one for me. He needs to build one for you. Check it out, PartsCasterConcierge.com. If you like the logo for the podcast and you want some art done, check out sbam.rocks. That is spam.rocks. They have a label. They have a festival. They do art. They're amazing. Check them out. Uh, If you're in central Indiana and you want to get a tattoo, you need to go to Permanence Tattoo Gallery over on Meridian Street in downtown Anderson, Indiana. You can check them out on the socials at Permanence Tattoo Gallery. Last but not least... BetterHelp.com. That is better H E L P.com. In your home, in your car, wherever, on your phone, remote counseling, remote therapy. If you need to get your mental health in check, you need to check out BetterHelp.com. And right now, for listening to this, if you are a TOTOT listener, you can get 10% off your first month. So head on over to BetterHelp. That is H E L P dot com forward slash t o t o t okay if you have a band or a company and you'd like to sponsor an episode or two you can hit me up t-o-t-o-t podcast at gmail.com and we will take care of it if you would like to support this podcast we have a patreon that is patreon.com forward slash t-o-t-o-t podcast if you'd like to send a one-time donation, you can hit up my personal Venmo. It is at Christopher Swinney, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-S-W-I-N-N-E-Y. I'd like to give a shout out to our art director, Sarah, over at Road Dog Supply. Make sure to head on over to our website, TOTOTpodcast.com, and pick up some merch. And make sure to follow Sarah and her company, Road Dog Supply, on Instagram and Facebook at road dog supply okay so i burnt through those sponsors as quick as i could because i have a radio segment today so cue the theme music On this edition of TOTOT Radio, I wanted to highlight a band that I love and I listen to all the time. Uh, this band has sponsored multiple episodes of this podcast. They've been around for years. Uh, I'm talking about one of my favorite current bands right now. They're called Protagonist. I don't know if you've heard of Protagonist. They're an 
awesome, amazing, spectacular melodic punk band from Florida. And uh, they're signed to TOTOT alum Vinnie Fiorello's label, Paper and Plastic Records. If you're looking for some new music, I urge you to check out Protagonist. I, I got to say, they, they've sent me, they sent me a couple shirts and a couple CDs. And I, ever since I've met the guys from Protagonist through the podcast, I've been a really, really big fan of theirs and a champion of what they do. And uh, hopefully in the future, I'll actually have some of the guys on the podcast. I, I really love them. I think you guys are going to love them as well, especially if you listen to this podcast. I know what kind of music you're kind of into. So uh, you can check them out on all of the streaming platforms, as well as all of their stuff is available at protagonist.bandcamp.com. And I'm going to play one of my favorites off their 2011 EP, States. It's the title track, States. I hope you dig it. Protagonist with States. Like I said, check them out. Protagonist.bandcamp.com. Great band out of Florida. And uh, hopefully I uh, will have them on the show very soon. So that is it for the intro, guys and gals. I'm going to do it right now. It's why you came. I'm going to jump into my conversation with Aaron from Fat Records. Here we go. And I'm on the line with Aaron from Fat Records. Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. I, I got to say, I'm, I'm very excited to have you on the program today. Fat Records has been probably the biggest 
influence musically on my entire life. (laughs) It's funny because uh, I used to be in a band called the Ataris and they actually worked with you guys on an EP a long time ago before I was ever in the band. So even to get to join a band that has some sort of lineage with the label was like a big deal for me. So I'm very honored to have you on the program today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, It's funny. It's funny you mentioned the Ataris because we're actually doing something with them uh, towards the end of the year or beginning of next year. Okay. Can you speak a little bit about that or no? <laughs> no, it's just that, that EP that you're referencing that was on fat. We never released it on vinyl. Oh, and so okay. uh, Chris Rowe hit me up and said, Hey, do you guys want to do this? And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then we got into a whole conversation about why we didn't release it on vinyl. And I, I mean, it's 30 years now. I can't, my brain is sort of like, I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I I don't know. I don't I have no idea, but we're going to do it. So that's be awesome. So all the Atari's fans out there, I know I'll be picking it up because I, I love that EP. And I yeah, just, I just, I want to kind of first off, start with kind of what else, what's on everybody's mind right now is this pandemic. You know, I haven't had a lot of people on the show that actually run a record label. It's mostly people that are on tour or whatever. And I kind of know how it's affected them. But as far as, you know, running a successful record label, and then also just in your personal life, how has this virus and the pandemic kind of affected you and the label? Well, I mean, first of all, I have to say, I, I, don't, I, I hate to complain because I am very blessed and I am lucky enough to um, not have to worry about how I'm going to, you know, pay my bills. And there are so many people that that is their main concern, uh, not necessarily how they're feeling emotionally, but how they're doing financially. Um, so I thank God don't have that worry, but I, but I am very worried for all of our bands because their livelihood is through touring and they're unable to do that. And so we have been brainstorming over the last nine months, trying to come up with new ways to try to, uh, help support them. Obviously bands are doing live streams, which is great. And that has helped sustain a lot of our bigger bands because there's a, there's a market for that. But for our smaller bands, it's a little tougher um, because it costs a lot of money to put together a live stream. It's not like it's just, you know, and so for them to be able to, um, you know, just keep people thinking about them and, and their music and also maybe get some money. It's been, uh, it's been tough. And I think I'm, I'm very worried about the emotional state of a lot of my artists because you know, their identity is completely wrapped up in being able to be on stage and they, they feed off of that and they sort of feel, you know, understandably so that they don't, they don't know who they are anymore. And they're really emotionally, it's tough. I'm, I'm worried about a lot of them. Well, I, I tell you, I kind of had, you know, not because of the pandemic, but when I stopped touring, I, I, I had my son and I kind of just started working an actual job and I had that identity crisis. So I can see how, They're having that. And, you know, that's why I started this podcast. I wanted to feel close again to my friends and to the music scene that took care of me for so long. So I totally can relate to how they probably don't even know what's going to happen or who they are anymore, like you said, right? Yeah. I mean, and and, and on on a, I mean, obviously not as large of a scale, but for me, I feel the same way. I, I have been really struggling and going kind of stir crazy because I don't think I realized until this pandemic, how much I live for things to look forward to. Yeah. If you, if you have a shitty day or just whatever, you just come, you know, you, you just, I, it would roll off of me and I would just go, Oh wait, because 
in two weeks, I get to hop on a plane and fly to Europe and go to punk rock holiday and see all my bands and my friends. And that's going to be fun. So who cares about this shitty day? Yeah. I got something coming up that's going to be great. And there isn't that anymore. <laughs> and it sucks. <laughs> you know, you it and sucks. I, you and I both are parents. Has, yeah. has, is it, you think maybe some people deal with the pandemic better not having children? Cause I know my children are toddlers, but I, yeah. it scares me so much bringing stuff home to them and just how they're dealing with it. Cause they're doing preschool online. And I just, I always want to ask how the parents feel about that. Do you think it's different when you actually have a child or you have a teenager or whatever? I personally think that it is a hundred times worse if you have a child. I, I feel I have never worried this much about, I mean, Darla is 16, so she's a teenager. Yeah. She, so luckily I'm not having to deal so much with all the homeschooling and becoming a teacher myself. I don't have to do that. But however, she has been home remote learning since San Francisco is one of those cities that we shut down really early and we barely opened up and then they shut us down again. So essentially we've been here since March 17th. That's how long we've been in this house. We had a couple of breaks where we could sort of, you know, do something, but certainly not, you know, we're not flying anywhere. Like that stuff's not happening. Um, but I worry because initially, especially with a teenager, I think that their social, their, their, their sense of who they are and their development and the things that she needs to become a, to become a, an adult right now to, 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 to grow, she needs social interaction. So to just have her in this house and she's an only child, that's not, something that, I mean, I want to keep her safe, but I also need her to be able to develop the way that she's supposed to be developing right now. And that involves friends and peers and, and social interaction. So we, we just basically early on, we, we came up with our own little bubble as, as parents of this little inner circle. So she's allowed to see, you know, like six or seven other kids. Um, and with the parents, we, we are in touch constantly, but you know, who knows? They're teenagers. I mean, I know, I know she's, she goes out of the house. If she goes out of the house, she's wearing a mask and she has hand sanitizer and I'm constantly like grilling her. You're going to go to the park where how you're going to sit six feet away. Like who's going to be there. You're not going to interact with anyone outside your bubble, but they're teenagers. So I don't know. It's not like I have a hidden camera on her. <laughs> I worry all the time. <laughs> it kind of, man, I tell you, I just had this weird thing is my only like vision of Darla is from backstage passport. And you yeah. telling me that she's 16 kind of blows my mind. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. I mean, because I, I have a four-year-old and a three-year-old, and people tell me, oh, it goes so fast, it goes so fast. But just that realization that I saw Darla on Backstage Passport, and now she's 16, it, it's insane to me. It's crazy. It is, actually. <laughs> uh, I mean, she turned 16 just uh, two months ago in the middle of this pandemic. Wow. Which... 16 for a girl is kind of a big birthday, so. It's a big deal, yeah. <laughs> but I think about it sometimes from their perspective, and it must just be so weird, because to think about how this this is like, this has never happened in our lifetime, me as an adult, and yet they're just younger, young, you know, yeah. the kids. This is like, I feel like, do they just think this is normal? I mean, I know they know that it's not, but... It's just such a, this whole year is just so weird. Yeah, like when I go to the grocery store, my, my four-year-old is always like, daddy, put your mask on. Like to them, it's just this thing that is happening. But to me, it's the weirdest thing in the world, right? It's so weird. <laughs> I mean, I think my hardest thing is that I'm a very tactile person. I am very much a hugger. Okay. Yeah, and me so, too. Me too. 
And I have to remind myself, I mean, I haven't really even seen that many of my friends, but if I have, obviously it's at a distance, unless we've had a couple of interactions where everybody got tested, well, twice, but we got tested beforehand and then stayed quarantined. I'm like, okay, maybe we can spend a weekend. But still, we try to stay outside and do everything you're supposed to be doing. But I have to remind myself when I see somebody I haven't seen in, you know, six months, I can't run up and hug them. And at times it, it almost feels rude. I mean, I, I tell you, my, my parents are, you know, in their mid to late sixties and I, I have, you know, the first few months I didn't see them very much at all, but now that it's, I, I know they don't have it. I don't think I have it. So we've been spending some time together, but that whole idea of hugging them when we leave, I, I haven't done that. And it's so weird. You can't. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> and even weirder is when somebody sees you, we were, we, we were out of the office. We were working remotely for like the first three or four months. And then we started going in on sort of a hybrid schedule where we alternate who goes in on what days and we're still wearing our masks and staying apart. But so we have had a couple of people come into the office and it happened once that, I mean, I'm talking, you know, like band members or whomever. Hey, sorry, my dog's. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, uh, and some, and when this individual went to give me a hug and I was like, Oh, and I backed off and then I felt like so rude. Cause I didn't want them to think like, Oh, I don't want to touch you. But I was like, pandemic, you know, here's yeah. an elbow. <laughs> I just hope, I just can't wait till it goes back to normal. And then I wonder, are we just going to be like this? Like, how is that? Am I going to go back to being the person that I was? Or am I always going to be worried about germs now? Well, yeah. People always say this might be the new normal. And I, I really, I mean, a big part of what I love other than playing music is going to a show. And like this podcast has afforded me the opportunity to go meet a lot of people and go to shows. And I just can't imagine living in a world where I'm excited for a live stream. I want to go see an actual band, you know, like you said, you're a tactile person. I want to feel the sweat and be up against people and, and hear that, you know. I was lucky enough to Lagwagon did a live stream. Should I go lock my dog up? Is that is it going to be a? It's it's kind of cool if you can just let him go. <laughs> <if you want. laughs> um, I was lucky enough Lagwagon did a live stream at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco, and everybody got tested. And then it, you you weren't allowed any people in there, so it was just the band, like two stage it people, and then like two people that worked at Great American, and then I was the only one that got to go. And I was like, this is amazing. Like this actual live band playing a show. And it and I was kind of worried beforehand that it was gonna feel, I don't know, just odd. Like it's a big venue and there's no crowd. And like, how is that gonna be? Because bands feed off the energy of the crowd. But yeah. it, it was awesome. It it made me feel the most normal I've felt since this whole thing started. And it was great. I can't wait till we get to go back. I, I'm I'm with you on that. But uh I do want to go go pretty far back. I, I don't know a lot about your story. I know, mm -hmm. you know, a lot about Mike and about the band and the label. And we'll talk a little bit about the label. But where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town called Penryn uh, in Northern California, which has a population of 1,500 people. Wow. <laughs> yeah, really tiny. And we lived on uh, 20 acres of land. And we... I, we, we raised um, pigs and lambs and goats and had horses and uh, had like one of the, one of the back end was like a, just a giant farm. And I, I mean, a, a, like a, you know, just, we grew everything. And so I spent uh, a garden and I spent like, you know, every Saturday pulling weeds out of the garden. And then <laughs> Sundays we had like have to roll this wheelbarrow around the back 10 and like pick up all the sticks so that the, 
goats and sheep could graze properly. Total farm life. <laughs> that's uh, that's kind of funny, like going from that to kind of where you are now. Like I, I, I grew up in Indiana, which is where I'm at right now, middle of the country. Farming stuff is fairly, you know, it's everywhere. If you drive 10 minutes from my house, you're in cornfields. So going from that to growing up, when was the first time that you kind of found punk rock music or you found like that underground kind of subculture? Well, that's sort of the reason that I found it is because I, I, I grew up in that environment. I never liked it. I always hated it. I always felt like I have an older brother and older sister, both my older brother and older sister, like married their high school sweetheart. Uh, my brother bought a house that's like on the same street of the house that we grew up on. I mean, and I always just felt like that, that was very much them. I don't know where I came from or how I was born into that family, but I always, I hated it. I never, I would, could not wait to get out. And so I, in high school, but it was such a small town that like there weren't any punk rockers. I didn't really even know what it was. I just knew that I felt completely out of place. Yeah. Uh, and then there was a foreign exchange student in my freshman year of high school. There was a foreign exchange student that came over from Amsterdam and she was punk. And I thought that she was in my, she was in my geometry class. And I remember when the first time I saw her, I was looking at her, I was like, wow, she is like such a nerd. I was like, she is really cool. <laughs> and then I decided that, uh, she was going to be my friend no matter what this person was gonna was gonna be my friend and so I tried to become her friend and she fucking hated me <laughs> like she just thought I was the biggest dweeb on the planet but eventually I wore her down and she is the one who introduced me to all of that music and it was you know when I the very first show that I went to in Sacramento because Sacramento is the closest town um I remember just getting in there and going ugh this is my people. I yeah. don't feel like an alien anymore. I actually, this is, this is what I've been looking for my whole entire life. These are my people, not those farmers. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just remember this feeling like this is awesome. And that was it. What were some of the bands when you first found it that you were really into back in the day? Well, it, you know, sort of there, they're not, there weren't a ton of like smaller acts that we were had, um, uh, exposure to obviously because we were sort of in the middle of nowhere. So it was like, you know, it was like circle jerks and black flag and seconds was the first one that I was like, I almost got my first tattoo when I was like 16 years old, I almost got a seven seconds tattoo. And then the guy wouldn't do it because I was underage. <laughs> and, and actually I'm kind of glad I didn't do that because I don't have any band tattoos. Yeah. I love seven seconds still, but I kind of don't really want a seven seconds tattoo. So I'm glad I didn't do that. But my most was bigger bands that only came through Sacramento. We didn't have exposure to a lot of smaller bands. I the whole thing about band tattoos, I I have a couple and a couple of them I'm stoked on, but a couple that I got when I was like 17, I'm not that stoked on. Like I have a Sublime tattoo. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and well. I still I mean I still like the band, but maybe it wasn't the best idea to get the tattoo when I was 17, yeah. you know. So I I feel you on that one. <laughs> I feel like that's the reason there is actually a law that you're not allowed to, I mean, legally get a tattoo until you're at least 18. Yeah. I think you need to have a little bit more of a developed brain before you decide to get barbed wire or something, you know? Oh, I think so too. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you're, you're getting into punk rock and everything. I, I do want to kind of fast forward. Did you ever play any instruments or were you just like, you were just totally into the music? Did you ever try to be in a band or anything or sing? I never tried to be in a band. I tried to learn how to play guitar, but I just wasn't very good at it. 
I mean, I, I dabbled and, you know, I used to pretend to sing, but for the most part, no, <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of musical talent. <laughs> you just admire music. You like music quite a bit though. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I would like to, you know, fast forward to when the whole fat thing kind of kicked off 1990. I've always, I'm a very analytical guy. Every band I've ever been in, I've done the business side of the band stuff. I've dealt with the labels, dealt with the booking agents, all of that. So I'm very interested, like when you guys started the label, you know, I've heard all the stories that, you know, it was in a closet with a fax machine or whatever. How did that all go down? Did you guys have some sort of plan or were you just totally flying by the seat of your pants? We had no plan. Um, it was, it, I mean, everyone's heard this before, but it was really, it was just something that we thought would be fun. Yeah. And Mike wanted to be able to put out his own music, like just, you know, they were on Epitaph, but it was just going to be sort of be like one-offs, like a seven inch here or there or whatever. Um, and so we just sort of had the idea, why don't we just, why don't we can put out a no effect seven inch ourselves? This is a thing that we can do. And so it kind of started with that. And then, uh, it just sort of developed because we realized this is, this is, we never had any intention of really making money. I mean, if you talk to Mike, he'll say something different. He, he, in his recollection, he thinks that we actually did think at some point that it was going to be profitable. I don't remember that. That's not my version of reality. I remember thinking that this is just going to be something we're going to do for fun. And I still had a full, I had a full, we were both in college and I had a full-time job and he was touring it, you know, whenever he could, he was still doing college, but whenever, whatever tours. And so it was mostly just like a side project. And then we sort of realized after we got involved in it, that there were a lot of other bands that we had come across on the road on tour. And we're like, Hey, we could do this. And it just sort of like evolved. Um, but from my perspective, I didn't, I never really thought that it was going to be a full time that, that we would be able to quit our day jobs and still um, be doing it 30 years later. Right. <laughs> I would have never, ever, ever thought that No. And in the beginning, I think it was great because Mike and I made a very good team because I have always handled the business side of everything. Um, and he was, you know, obviously had brought that because he's in a band. He also has the unique perspective of understanding how a band wants to be treated and what kind of relationship they want to have with their label because he's got both sides of it. And because he's a very, uh, he's a big risk taker and he's sort of is like, he doesn't, he doesn't like to, uh, have to sit too long to make a decision. He would rather make the wrong decision than to not make any decision at all yeah. versus, versus me. I'm very like cautious and I'm like, Oh, I'm not, I don't know about that. I think we should wait. And I'd rather, I would rather wait make no decision until I know it's the right one. Yeah. And so that dynamic worked really well for us because we would sort of meet in the middle and in the middle was perfect. Neither one of us went off the rails. <laughs> so with those first, you know, I, I followed the label forever. And of course I've watched the documentary. Sean, the director of the documentary has been on the show. He's a friend of mine. Those first few bands did you guys have the feeling they were going to do as well as they did? Because that kind of set up the label. I mean, no use for a name, Propagandi, Lagwagon, Strung Out. It, that, those are, I mean, I can't imagine signing all those bands within that limited amount of time you guys yeah. had. I mean, I, I had the feeling that those bands were something special and that they had a unique sound and that they had potential to do really well. 
my only doubt was whether or not we were going to be able to deliver that for them. So, and again, if you ask Mike, he would have said he knew he could. <laughs> I'm always a kind of the person who's like, oh, well, I'm going to do the best that I can. And I hope that my best is good enough. And, and then I'm pleasantly surprised when it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm that kind of person. So I always had faith in the bands and I knew that we were onto something as, as those, as those releases just sort of like, we just went from like Lagwagon to No Use to Propaganda. And I was like, holy crap, what is happening here? Like, this are, we've got like this momentum and all of these bands are doing really well. And then as that evolved, it was sort of like we all grew up together because, you know, this was the, the bands were younger and new and we were young and, and, and we sort of grew up figuring out how to make everything work. And it became like a, it, it was definitely not maybe smooth in the beginning, but eventually it got to the point where I was like, okay, we're doing this. And I think we're doing a good job. And then I was like, you know, I'm just always the person who like, I, I set my expectations, not, not low, but I don't like to set them too high because I just like to, I like to, I like to be pleasantly surprised when something does really well. So with those early releases, what was kind of the process where you guys I mean, what was your your marketing process, I guess, coming from really not knowing what to do to sell a record other than Mike being in a band and working kind of with Epitaph? What did you guys do? Was it all ads and stuff back then for like mail order? I mean, yeah, there was a lot of ads, but we the, the thing that really sort of propelled us were those fat samplers that we did. And we came up with the idea to do a sampler of our bands and we just made these like little, these little CDs that we just put in those, I can't remember what they're called, but they're just like the little like an envelope and we manufactured hundreds of thousands of these with what we consider, you know, like our favorite song off of each of these records. And we gave them to our bands and said, give these out for free. So initially we didn't even sell those. And that was probably the most genius marketing thing that we ever came up with because, and that was based on the bands that was based on our belief that these bands are so fucking good that if, that if you just give them one taste of it, people are going to be dying to buy the record. And it worked. Well, I'll tell you, that was, I mean, one way that I found so many of my favorite bands. I remember the Punkarama stuff from Epitaph. And then I remember Fat Music for Fat People. Like those those compilations, we talk about it on this podcast all the time. People got careers from those compilations and people found their favorite bands from those compilations. It's an ingenious idea. It was a great idea. And the fact that we did it and we let the bands take them on tour and gave them away for free was genius. Because so many of our bands would tour around and they, and, they, and they would come back with feedback and they'd say, well, that, they, how was the show? How, how was the audience? They were like, well, it was great. But, you know, every time we, every time we play this, you know, these smaller towns, the one song they're all begging for is that one song that's off the comp, which is awesome. Yeah. You know? But <laughs> it definitely, I mean, that, that, they hit a huge audience. So it was definitely a, a great exposure for a lot of our smaller bands as well. So with the the mid to late 90s, kind of what people kind of call it the glory days, you know, with Epitaph and Fat, after Green Day and, and Offspring and all that, did you kind of notice something was happening? Like, did it happen overnight or was it this gradual climb? How were those times for you guys? I feel like it was gradual. Um, I don't, it definitely didn't feel overnight, but, you know, um, when when Green Day was hitting and then when Offspring, Offspring went, big, we were like, this is weird. Cause now this stuff is on the radio because we never, you know, punk to me was not ever radio friendly from like, that's, and that's to me also what was kind of special about it. Like when I was in high school, 
it was cool to be sort of like you were in on this like secret that like not everybody else knew about. And, and then there was obviously, as you know, a lot of blowback when, when punk actually became more mainstream and then people were like, you sold out, you know, yeah. all that. That's bullshit because if you're playing the same music that you've always been playing and suddenly it becomes a little bit more popular and you're actually able to earn a living off of your art, that the same the same music that you've always been playing, that is not selling out. <laughs> That, that is um, maybe just being in the right place at the right time <laughs> and having the tides turn. I don't know, but that's definitely not selling out. But so there was a lot of that. And then No Use for Name became fairly big and they actually got some radio play. So the first time that I remember thinking, oh, wow, this is kind of a big deal is when we actually hired somebody to work radio. And that to me was like just an odd thing because it just didn't feel like something a punk label was doing. It felt like something a major label was going to be doing, but you know, we had pretty good success with it for a while. Were there, uh, were there ever, I'm sure there probably was, especially during that time. I know that bands were always getting, you know, major labels were looking for the next green day, the next offspring, but some record labels were actually selling to majors. Was there a lot of majors that were coming around kind of sniffing around fat records? We, Definitely. I wouldn't say a lot, but yes, we had some. There were people that had, you know, if Mike and I happened to be in New York for the weekend, we would get a call from one of our distributors saying, hey, so-and-so wants to meet with you from Sony or can we, can they take you to dinner? We took a couple of dinners. We had zero intention of selling, but I, but, but, but I, but I just kind of thought, I'll take a free dinner. <laughs> I don't give a shit. I'll listen to what you have to say. You're going to take me out to some posh restaurant and pay for it? Cool. We had zero intention of ever selling, but it was, you know, interesting to talk to them and get their perspective. So, but I mean, the, the bottom line is that the, 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 the reason that we would never do anything like that is because fat has always been based on, on us taking direction from our bands versus the, it's the bands influence what we do more so than we influence what they do. And that's always been our motto. And that's why bands have come with us 30 years ago and never left Yeah, because yeah. they're not, they're not, you know, they're not bound by a contract. We don't, we only do single record deals. So at any time, if somebody's not happy with how we've performed, then they should feel free to go somewhere else. And so that's sort of a barometer as to, are we doing our job well enough? Because we want to, we want feedback, you know, we want to be able to, we want a band to stay with us because they're happy with us and not because they're locked in. Was there, was there some story I'm trying to remember? I'm not even sure if I saw this on an interview or whatever, but where MTV2 wanted the No Use for a Name video, but they also wanted like a No Effects video or something, and there was some kind of push-pull with MTV2. Do you know anything about that? I'm sure that happened. I don't remember that exactly, but there was a lot. There was stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, that's how the music industry is. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, through those those glory days and you guys, you know, like a million records a year or whatever, and you had offices all over the world, 18 employees, to then lately the record industry the last few years has been kind of going down people are still buying physical but it's mostly vinyl and like limited kind of stuff how did that feel for you guys because like i love on the documentary where it's like you know in the 80s nobody made money off of punk rock so we're just kind of doing it the way we always did and yeah you had those awesome years that kind of set you up so how was that when it started to kind of fall off were there a lot of talks and meetings on what you guys needed to do to kind of keep it going? Well, obviously it's kind of a bummer, but I also kind of feel like, you know, the music industry is constantly changing, constantly evolving, not just the music industry, but just life. Like 
<laughs> it's not going to be like it was in the 90s forever. So you just have to come up with new ways to reinvent yourself, keep yourself relevant, and keep your bands in the forefront. And I feel like um, if I don't know how anybody would start a record label now. Yeah. If it, in this, I mean, forget about the pandemic. I'm saying like even last year, you know, start a label now. I don't understand how anybody would become. I don't know how you would ever turn a profit. It would definitely just have to be a complete labor of love. Um, and you'd have to have a day job from my perspective, <laughs> because the reason we are able to sustain ourselves is because we've got this 30 year history. We have all this back catalog from these, these, um, you know, founders of punk rock and there's always going to be up and coming new fans. And, you know, we have at least a dozen, if not more, in my opinion, records that if you're just getting into this music scene, you're going to have to go, you, you need the, you need the founders before you're going to listen to the new stuff. And so we have a lot of that back catalog. And so luckily that back catalog continues to sell and generate uh, a revenue so that we can spend more money on newer bands that maybe don't have that following and we're really trying to invest in them. And it just sort of like all balances out because it's hard to make money on a new small band these days because you got to build them. Did you notice like, I mean, I know you guys have done vinyl for a really long time, but with CDs kind of declining, are, are you guys still kind of doing CDs or is that kind of something that's going away? It's weird because I've talked to other people in the industry, different, different owners of record labels. And for some strange reason, our CDs are still, we're, they're still at like 35, 40% of our, of our, um, sales are physical. So I don't, it's odd. I'm not sure why we're still manufacturing them and we're still making them because there's still, there's still a need for them and people are still buying them. Um, but we obviously it's less and less than it, than it used to be. And digital is taking over more of the market, but also, um, this year we've been doing a lot of, um, reissues and special, um, vinyl because there, because there's the pandemic, because there hasn't, people have, our bands haven't been able to go, I mean, into the studio and let alone on tour, it's been a difficult year to have a lot of new releases. And so part of, part of what we've done is just figured out ways to, um, reinvent and make something special and, and fun that is, um, already existing. What was it like with the transition to streaming? Like, were you guys kind of there at the beginning and like, yeah, let's do it. Or were you guys kind of a holdout? I, I have friends at other labels that, uh, especially punk labels that when that be kind of, it was becoming the norm, they maybe weren't into it at the beginning. When, when was that like kind of spearheaded for you guys? I definitely wasn't that into it in the beginning because I feel like, uh, I, I'm, I'm like a vinyl person and I just feel like that, again, I'm tactile. So I like the experience of, of physically holding the, 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 the piece of art. And, and I, and also I like obviously the way vinyl sounds better, but I just feel like the whole, the whole experience transitioning into the streaming is just sort of lost. There's, you don't have, you don't have a lyric sheet. You're not looking at the, it just, it doesn't, but obviously, if you want to stay in an industry, you have to go with the trends. You can hold out as long as you want to, but at some point, you're not going to be able to stay relevant if you don't go with it. And because we have distribution all over the world, our distributors were pushing us to enter the, that market as well. So at a certain point, it doesn't really even matter what you want. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to do a service for your bands, if you want to be able for them to have a career, then you have to go with it. 
So I had a question. Uh, one thing that I really don't know the story on, and I've always kind of wondered, you guys had those imprints. You had Honest Dawns and Pink and Black. Kind of where did those ideas come from? And it always almost seemed like kind of like a farm team, like like a band <laughs> would be on Honest Dawns and then maybe their next release would be on Fat Proper. Is, is that kind of how it went? It wasn't really supposed to be like that. What happened was we realized it wasn't intentional. I mean, we have always signed bands that Mike and I personally enjoy. Yeah. Like it's all about the music for us. And then also secondary, the people that they are because we form really strong relationships with our bands. But so sort of, I guess not necessarily intentionally or accidentally, whatever, we had a certain sound, obviously that the, the early fat bands had a very distinct sound and you could listen to a band and say, well, that's a fat band or that's not for the most part. It's not so much like that anymore, but in the beginning it was. So then there were other, there were a handful of other bands that we really liked, but at that time we were sort of building our brand and there was a certain sound and we're like, they don't really fit that though. We want to work with them. We like them, but they're a little bit different. And I don't feel like maybe they fit this unique sound of this, of the fat brand that we're building. So we thought, well, why don't we just come up with a, a subsidiary label and then we can work with these bands that we want to work with and we'll just put them on. So that was how Honest Dawn started. That was just sort of like, they're not exactly like that in that fat iconic sound. So we're going to put them over here because we love them. And then Pink and Black was actually, I, I wanted to work with more women, female bands. And that's just sort of like all mine and has nothing to do with Mike. And I'll go out there and I'll find some, some women in the industry that I want to work with, some bands that I enjoy working with that, ha that, are, that are female, and we'll put them on there. And then eventually we realized that <laughs> that might, that it didn't really matter because everybody still associated them with fat. Yeah. And also, it also was the same team working it. Like we, it was the fat staff that was also working with Honest Dons and also working with Pink and Black. So I don't know, after a couple of years, we just kind of went, this doesn't really make any sense. This is a great idea, but it doesn't really make any sense. Let's just fold it all into fat. Yeah. <laughs> Put it all back. I just remember that. I remember that Honest Don's uh, sampler, Greatest Shits with the clown, like taking a shit. And I, I remember bringing that, bringing that home. And I can't remember how old I was, but I was still living at home. And uh, my mom saw it and she's like, what is that? <laughs> she just thought it was kind of funny, but you know. <laughs> At least you didn't take it away from me or try to break it over her knee. My dad walked into my bedroom when I was like 16 or something. And I was listening to the Dead Kennedys and he was a massive JFK fan. And he looked at it and he went, this shit will not be in my house. And he picked, the, he picked up the vinyl and smashed it over his knee. He wow. broke it. Like, God, you're a dick. It's <laughs> so not cool. My dad was always a little bit cooler about the punk rock stuff. Like he actually thought the Dead Kennedys were cool. He told me that my first band should be called the Dead Shitheads after the Dead Kennedys. <laughs> but <laughs> my mom was a little less cool with the stuff. You know, she would see, I can't even remember I was talking to. Oh, I was talking to uh, Magnus from Satanic Surfers the other day. And I was like, the first time my mom saw a CD that said Satanic Surfers, she was not stoked on it. <laughs> Yeah, the parents don't usually like the satanic references. Yeah, even if they're just a punk band that used it to be funny. They don't like that stuff, you know. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to talk a little bit before I let you out of here about the documentary. I know from talking to Sean, I'm, I'm friends with that guy, and how like you guys didn't really know that it was kind of going on. They kind of just took it upon themselves to do it. But yeah. like 
what was the response like? And, and did you guys enjoy the finished product? I mean, it's one of my favorite documentaries because I'm tied so much to what you guys do, you know? Yeah. I mean, I definitely enjoy the finished product. Um, I'm not going to lie. It was a little, it was a little weird in the beginning because we don't know Sean. Yeah. And there was no conversation with us, which I thought was kind of strange. I just, from my perspective, I kind of thought like, if you're going to do a documentary about a record label, it seems to me that you would actually reach out to the record label and have a conversation with them. Yeah. I found out about it from some third. I don't even remember how I found out about it. It was a third party or something. And I was like, wait, what? What are you talking about? The Fat Rec documentary? There isn't one. <laughs> and so I had to sort of, I, I mean, I had to sort of adjust to it because I kind of came and then, and then part of me felt like, okay, well, I don't know. Isn't it, is this, isn't this our story to tell? Shouldn't we be the one to tell this story and not a person that we don't know? And then I came to realize that it's probably true that the best documentaries are, 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 produced or, or, you know, orchestrated by people that aren't part of the story because it becomes more, um, objective and not, you know, it's not, if you're telling your own story, you're obviously sugarcoating exactly what you want people to see. So that's not really a true documentary. So I came around to that way of thinking. Um, and then once we got on board, I felt much better about it. Um, and then, but then there was just the, like the confusion of like, trying to, to help support Sean in his endeavor and give him access to our bands and give him access to anybody, you know, the music and whatever, whoever he wants to interview. But because we didn't have any um, control of the production, I also wanted to be careful to make sure that people didn't think that we're behind it or yeah, that we're, yeah. you know. And so that was kind of, that was kind of a weird distinction for us to try to make. Cause I still think a lot of people think that we, were either, you know, had, had creative control over it or were somehow involved in the production, which we weren't. And I think it's great. I just, it was, it became like a hard line to walk of like, you know, trying to, trying to help Sean and give him access to everything without actually putting a fat brand on it. So people didn't think that it was the, that, you know, if I had done it, there was, I would have told the story a little bit differently, but, and I'm sure Mike would have as well. But, but I do think the final product was, was very good. And it was, um, I think really representative of, of who we are. I think he did a great job. Well, shout out to Sean. He listens all the time. So good job on the documentary (laughs) and it's available right now on Amazon prime. If anybody would like to watch it. (laughs) I know. Yeah. That was, that's an awesome win for him. He got it on Amazon. That's great. Yeah. I actually paid for it on iTunes and then like a week later it was free on Amazon prime because I'm a prime member and I was like, oh, well I'll just, I supported him. So there you go. That's great. You know, you want to hear a funny thing about that is I feel like I have paid for almost every fat release on iTunes because <laughs> I'm not, I'm not the most tech savvy person in the world. And even so I obviously have the releases, you know, six months before they actually come out. So I'll listen to them like in Dropbox or something, but yeah. that's, you know, you can't listen to a record in Dropbox. So you have to keep stopping and hitting play and all, whatever. My point is, when they actually finally come out in, in, on the digital platform, I usually just download them on iTunes because I just feel like it's just a, a better representation of what everybody else is listening to, and it's hard for me to blend my iTunes library. So I'm also buying Fat Records releases. Well, it's kind of <laughs> like that thing of where you're in a band. I mean, I know I've experienced it on release day. You'll probably get a, a, cop, a copy from the label, but I like to go to Best Buy or go to a local mom and pop store and actually buy, like, I'm on this record, you know? Yeah, that's exactly. my favorite thing. So yeah, you put out the record, the money's most of it's going back to you <laughs> and after <laughs> Apple's cut, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So um, I did want to ask you 
I've had so many people, I always put up a thing on Instagram, like, Hey, do you have any questions for Aaron? And I, I do have some questions, but before I get to the questions, everybody that I know that's in an unsigned band, which I know a lot because they sponsor these episodes, they're all like, will you give Aaron my demo? And of course I'm not <laughs> going to do that because I'm not going to util- use my podcast to help people get signed. But right. I am interested. You guys pick bands that you like, and it's about the people, like you said, what is the process? Are there, I'm sure you get unsolicited demos probably in the mail, email all the time. What is the signing process? Just like an average time that you meet somebody and maybe you like them. How does that go? I mean, you know, we don't have A and R, so we don't actively go out and seek new acts. Um, and just because it, it, now that we have such a, such a, a giant base, um, it's usually word of mouth. And a lot of times it's something, it's like one of our bands has a friend that's in a band or, you know, is, and, or has toured with another band and they'll just say, well, I really think that this is a good match. I think that you'd be right on fat. So a lot of it comes through like Joey from Lagwagon or Zach from Pears or whoever sends you something and says, I think they'd be a great fit. A lot of it is that. We also have just, you know, people email us stuff at mailbagfatrec.com and um, it'll go through um, Pat, an employee at, at fat um, is usually the one who goes through the, the mailbag and sort of listens. And so sometimes he'll just pull those out and he'll give it like a quick listen. And if he thinks it's something that we might be interested to and interested in, then he'll um, send a link and send it around to the whole staff. And then we all sort of listen. Um, there's definitely ways of getting signed on fat. If you don't even know anybody, you can just send us your demo and persistence is key. Sometimes <laughs> you might not hear something back the first time. I love the whole persistence is key thing. I tell this story a lot on the podcast. My first band, Chronic Chaos, this punk band I had in high school, which we got two rejection letters from Mike. I'll, <laughs> I'll let you know that right now. But uh, we wanted to be on Warp Tour. And I had a friend who knew Kevin Lyman and gave me his personal email, not the one on the Warped website, but his personal I, email. And yeah. I emailed him three times and he finally got back and said, you guys sound good. I don't know. I'll think about it. And then I emailed him every day for three months and he gave us, he gave us a month and a half on the tour. <laughs> I love that story. That is great. <laughs> and, and I was very nice to him. I, I wasn't like mean and pushy. I was just like, Hey man, just yeah. saying, hi, we really want to do it. We'll do anything. We'll even like, you know, clean up after catering, whatever you want us to do. And finally, yeah. after three months of every day, he said, if you quit emailing me, I'll give you a month on the Kevin Says stage. <laughs> that rules. And I so that. I wear that as a badge and, and I still have I still have the rejection letters from Fat Mike and they were very nice. They weren't one of them was the form letter where you just circle something, but one of them was actually like you guys sound pretty good, just not feeling it for the label. <laughs> yeah. So so I, I I have those and I just I don't know, it's a nice part of my my musical journey. <laughs> That's great. I will say persistence is key, but not punishing. Punishing yes. is not, I'm not going to respond great to that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, three months is a little excessive, but I, I was always, I was very it polite. It, it did work. Yeah. I was kind of, at one point I'm like, well, if I stop now, I'm still kind of a douche. I need I to keep going. I've wasted three months of my life. If I stop now, I got to keep going. And, and Kevin's still a good friend of mine. I love that guy. And I mean, it all started from me being a little shitty kid emailing him, you know? <laughs> yeah. Kevin's great. So I do have some uh, some listener questions. I have two listener questions, if you wouldn't mind answering them. 
Okay. Okay, here we go. So Kevin uh, from I, from Instagram, he didn't tell me where he's from. So Kevin from Instagram said, are there any bands that you guys tried to sign but went with another label that you kind of wish you could have sealed the deal with? Mm-hmm. Uh, a long time, well, not, I can't remember how long ago, but we, we wanted to sign Alkaline Trio. I mean, Matt's a good friend of ours yeah. and, well, actually all of them are. Um, and obviously we love them. And there was, we were under, we were under negotiations and talking. Uh, and then it sort of just kind of, I don't, I'm not even actually sure a hundred percent how that fell through. Something happened. And then just suddenly they, they were like, yeah, we're not going to do it. Uh, then there's a newer band that I'm not going to say a band that I tried to get and haven't, but I'm working on. I don't actively pursue bands very often, but there's a band um, from Sacramento called Destroy Boys. And I absolutely love them. In fact, I like them so much that I flew, they were playing a show. I was looking at their tour schedule and I hadn't seen them live yet, but I'd heard, but I've heard their music. And then I <laughs> flew out to an LA show cause they didn't have, a, they didn't have a West coast show or sorry, a San Francisco Bay area show. So I flew down to LA to go see them and love them so much. And I definitely actively pursued them and we were in talks and they were like, well, I think we're going to do it. I, I think, I think we still might get them, but <laughs> <laughs> really like Destroy Boys to be on fat. And there's another band, uh, Reviver, out of um, Washington that I that I like a lot and would very much like to work with. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Kevin, for your question. I have one more listener question. Chris, uh, and from Illinois, he says, what is the one thing you wish you knew before starting your business career? Like a lesson maybe you've learned from, from running the label. Hmm. It's a tough this one, is, right? It's kind of a tough one. Um, and it's going to be, I'm going to give you a weird answer because I feel like my answer doesn't make a lot of sense because it's part of also what made fat successful. I feel like um, the fact that Mike and I were married for 20 years and started this business together and then were able to keep it, that, the fact that we're still able to be business partners now even though we're divorced, I think is huge. Um, but to answer this question, what I was going to say is, I don't think that if I were to do this again, I do not think that I would go into business with my spouse. <laughs> yeah. It, it definitely plays, uh, it takes a huge toll on your marriage. <laughs> it is not easy to work all day long with your partner. And then, and there's no spacing, there's no distance. And you, you carry your business arguments home into your personal life. Um, I'm not sure I answered the question exactly how he, what he, what he meant, but I would say that I, I wish that I knew that it was going to be this tough to be in a business relationship with my partner. Well, I think that kind of brings us back to the whole pandemic thing because, you know, I love my wife, but I'm not normally home 24 seven. I'm no, I, I teach guitar for a living. I go out and, you know, she's here a lot with the kids, but then she goes out with her mom and, being yeah. in this house with two toddlers all the time, even, you know, working remotely, whatever, it's a strain. So starting a business with a spouse, I can see how that could get a little sketchy, right? Yeah, it was stressful. It was definitely stressful. And again, I, I, the reason I think that the answer to my, that, the reason my answer is strange is because I also think that's what made that succeed. Yeah. I think the fact that, that we were partners in all of our life endeavors at that point, I think really helped make that make solidify fat, but also it became very difficult as I think it's that as our personal relationship, as we started realizing that we were evolving into different people that became even harder 
because now not only is, are we sort of disagreeing a little bit personally, but it's like transferring over to the business and vice versa. So it's, it's, it's a tough thing. And I'm, I'm really grateful that we have maintained a friendship and have been able to um, maintain the relationship and keep fat um, profitable and, and vital. And, you know, well, I will say that, you know, I have a lot of friends that have been on fat either currently or past, you know, like I know a lot of people that have worked with the label and the one thing that always comes up is not anything about Mike. It's about how much they love you. Aww, so that I just, I was so excited to talk to you today because like I've met Mike, I've met all those guys and a lot of people from the label. I'd never met you before and just glowing reviews from all my friends. So, and, and you've, Aww. you've surpassed what they've said. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're so welcome. <laughs> thank you for having me on. Well, I tell you what, I do want to know what you are currently listening to. You were, you were talking about uh destroy boy, right? Destroy Boys. Boys. Yeah. Destroy Boys. And then Reviver. Was that the other one? Reviver. Yeah. Is, is there anything else that you're currently listening to right now? Nothing new, really, now that I think about it. Um, I, there's nothing new that I've discovered in this pandemic that I wasn't already listening to. I know it sounds crazy, but I listen to a lot of my favorite bands are on my label. And I know that sounds <laughs> So, I mean, I don't think it's any big secret that Lagwagon is my favorite band. Yeah, and yeah. Lagwagon would be my favorite band, whether they were on my label or not on my label, whether or not Joey was my best friend or wasn't my best friend. I love Lagwagon. I listen to a lot, a lot, a lot of fat records bands. And sometimes I, sometimes I feel like, well, maybe I shouldn't share that. Maybe that just makes it sound like I'm, so, I'm a weirdo or something. But I have a very distinct ear, and I don't like a lot of music that isn't punk, which is odd. I think for a music lover, you should have a little bit more, um, you know, liquidity to your, to your, to your ear. I mean, obviously I like the things like the Beatles and if it's good music, it's good music, but I don't know. I don't like, I don't think, I don't like things like jazz and blues and yeah. I don't like rock. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question. Like, I mean, my kids are young, of course, but my son, he's almost five. He's obsessed with BTS, which is like the K-pop, like boy band guys. Yeah. Does, yeah. does Darla ever let you hear something and you're just like, oh man, I'm not into that. Like, cause she's 16. I'm sure she's listening to like Post Malone or whatever they listen to. Right. I can't stand what she listens to. <laughs> it, makes, it makes me feel like a grandma. And the weird thing is, once again, I very much only listen to punk with very few exceptions. And so growing up with me, we're listening in the house to punk. We're listening in the car to punk. And she definitely grew up liking it and had an affinity for it when she was like, I don't know, 10 or 11, 12, whatever. Mass Intruder was her favorite band. She likes, she likes the poppier bands. Like she likes Teenage Bottle Rocket. She likes Mass Intruder. Um, but then it sort of like evolved and then, then they just sort of get out, which is what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to venture out. You're not supposed to be in charge of everything their whole life. And yeah. so she started going out and listening to other things. And then she started bringing things home and she'd play it. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> and then, then, and I don't mind as long, if I don't like the music, that's fine. But when I listen to the lyrics and the lyrics are either garbage or completely offensive, there's a, there's, there's a, she's been listening to a lot of like, I don't know. I guess you would call it rap, but 
it's just offensive. And then I've had to have multiple conversations with her where I'm like, sweetheart, are you listening to what the, this is misogynistic and sexist? And just why are you not offended by this as a young woman? She's like, I just like the music, mom. And I'm like, <laughs> oh God, no, you cannot just like the music. You have to listen to the lyrics. That's not okay. That is not music appreciation. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the thing. My, my, my kid listens to BTS so much. I know all the words. <laughs> I have that same problem because, well, not anymore, but up until the pandemic, I go to SoulCycle and Barry's Bootcamp gyms, uh, you know, like five or six times a week. And they play the biggest, I mean, it's, it's popular music, but to me it's garbage. And it's very upsetting to me when I'm like in the middle of a workout and I go, oh, fuck, now I know all the words to the stupid song that I hate. <laughs> it's not cool. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Aaron, I've had you on the phone for a while now. Uh, I would like to know what you guys have maybe lined up in the future. You were talking about releasing the Atari's thing on vinyl with the pandemic. It kind of hinders bands, but what does the label have in the works in the coming months? Um, we have some cool Christmas items coming up. Um, I'm probably not supposed to say exactly what they are, but we, we have some cool Christmas items that we're going to put up. Um, and then we're just trying to work for like pretty much new releases are sort of done around mid November before th you're not, you can't really put anything out after Thanksgiving because yeah. it just gets, lost. um, so we do have the Christmas stuff, but then, you know, the no effects record is coming out early next year, which has been long awaited. And internally we've had, I don't know, four or five, six different release dates for that record. And then they just keep getting bumped. Yeah. Um, and it's really good, so I'm excited for it to finally get out there, even though a lot of the songs are already <laughs> have already been heard because it's been such a long process. And Mike Mike just gets like, you know, antsy. He's just like he he's been working on it so long that he gets antsy and he's like, Okay, let's just release this one. I did a video, let's do it. And I'm like, Hey, but we don't even have like we don't have we're, we don't have a rollout scheduled yet. We don't have a release date. We shouldn't just be he's like, I'm doing it. People need something in the pandemic, which is endearing. Yeah, yeah. That he's trying to make sure that people are still entertained. Um, and then, you know, we'll be just trying, we've been trying to figure out who, our schedule for early next year. Face to Face has a record, um, coming up earlier in the year. No effects, um, Teenage Bottle Rockets in the studio right now. I don't know if I'm supposed to be saying any of these things. They just posted today that they were in the studio. So I think that's okay. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> and I've, and it's funny because I just did an episode with Trevor. I, I've done an episode with Smelly. I, I, I mean, I just feel like part of the family. So thank you for letting me, Vanessa hits me up all the time. Like, Hey, you want to do another episode with this person? I'm like, yes. I, I just feel like if you guys ever need a fat wreck themed podcast, let me know. And I will be the host. <laughs> Absolutely. This has been really a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So everybody can check out fatwreck.com for all of that. But, uh, what are your socials? Would you like people to check you out on Instagram or anything? Sure. I'm, uh, E daggers. E daggers at E daggers. Yeah. And it, it's only because it should be at E dagger. But when I tried to sign up for Instagram, somebody already had E dagger. And <laughs> so I added an S and the funny thing is that person must be like super bummed. Cause, cause I, cause she must get like all these requests for people that she doesn't, you know, yeah. know. Well, that's awesome. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. I've had an amazing time speaking with you. And uh, in the future, if you want to come back and chat about new releases or anything, just uh, let Vanessa know and you can come back on. Okay. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. So there it was my conversation with Aaron from Fat Records. I had an absolute blast talking with Aaron. 
And I'm hoping to have her back on the show real soon. Hopefully, you know, there's there's all kinds of good stuff going on at Fat Records. You've got tons of reissued vinyl like that Atari's record she was talking about. Uh, they just announced a No Use for a Name Rarities collection. And of course, next month on the 26th, you've got the new No Effects release single album. I heard Mike talking about that on another podcast, and he just thought it was funny because, you know, everybody records a double album. This is a single album. There, He's always thinking. He's a sharp guy. <laughs> I could not be more excited for <clears throat> the new No Effects record. I think it's really good. I've heard some of the songs off of it, and it's it's pretty killer. It's their 14th record, and I don't see them letting up. I've I've liked everything that they do. I Like I say all the time, I celebrate their entire catalog. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm hoping to have Mike on the show soon to discuss the new record and whatever other weird shit he wants to talk to me about. If you've heard Mike on podcasts, you know how it goes. But uh, for more information on the new No Effects record and the new No Use for a Name Rarities collection or any of that reissued vinyl, you can just check out fatrec.com. So that is it for this week. I appreciate you spending some time with me every week, if that's what you do. I don't know if you're walking your dog or if you're smoking a cigarette outside or sitting on your couch or what you're doing, driving to your work, your job, whatever. Thank you so much for spending time with me. It means the world to me. And I'm going to keep putting out these great episodes and you can keep consuming these episodes uh, if you want to let me know what you think of the show or you want to, you know, just get a hold of me just to talk. I've had some really amazing emails lately from people that uh, that just found the show. It's cool that people are, are still finding the show. We've been around for almost three years, but people are just now finding it. And it's, it's great because a lot of the people that have been emailing, they say, I found your show like two weeks ago and I'm already through like 120 of the episodes. So thank you so much for listening. I do... Uh, want to warn you if you find the show on like, you know, episode 126 or whatever, and you go back to the first episode, I think I've gotten better at being a podcaster. I don't think any of the episodes are bad, but I do think that, uh, you know, just, it took me a while to find my voice and be myself and and know how to be a host and kind of know how to chat with people. And I mean, I'm not a journalist or anything, but it did take me a while to kind of get better at what I'm doing. And I feel like I've got a good handle on it now. I, I get compliments once in a while. So that makes me feel good. So if you like the show, you just found the show, you've been listening since episode one, whatever, I'd love to hear from you. You can hit me up a million different ways with socials at TOTOT podcast, email TOTOT podcast at gmail.com. All the links and our merch and everything are over at tototpodcast.com. So uh, before I play some music and get out of here, I do want to urge you to check out my new band, Fire Sale. It features me, of course, and members of No Use for a Name and Protest the Hero and Ann Beretta. And it's, it's, I'm really proud of this. We've got some good stuff that we're working on. And I think that everybody out there is really going to like it. And, uh, yeah, I don't really have a timeline yet. We do have the first single almost done. It's in the mixing process right now. We're kind of going song by song. I don't know if we'll release them song by song, but we are recording them and mixing them that way. So, uh, yeah, I could not be more excited for Fire Sale. If you guys want to check out Fire Sale on the socials, it is at Fire Sale is a band and uh, just could not be more stoked. And I, I really think you guys are going to enjoy it. And it feels good to write music again, write 
I mean, just, I haven't been in that area for a while. So to write some songs and have some people play on the, the release that I just, that inspire me to be a better musician. It's, it's really cool. And we will get back to the, uh, introducing segment, the, the members of fire sale next week. So, uh, yeah, check it out. Fire sale is a band at fire sale is a band. So before I jump out of here, I'm going to play some music. Like I said, I'm going to play the band that Aaron was talking about destroy boys. They have nothing to do with this podcast, but Aaron likes them and I checked them out and they're really good. So I'm going to play destroy boys with their song, honey, I'm home. And I'm going to follow it up with the new no effect single linoleum, which is sort of like a reimagining of their classic linoleum as a tribute to all the bands all over the world that have covered said song. So uh, I love you guys and gals. Remember to wash your hands, wear your mask, be kind to one another, be kind to one another, please. I can't even speak tonight. I'm, I'm really tired. Normally I've been getting these podcasts done early, but it's super late. I'm back to my old ways. So be kind to one another. I will see you next week. As always, this is your buddy, Chris. Peace.
Fredrickson from Rancid. This is Mark O'Connell from Taking Back Sunday. This is Tom from MXPX. Hey, this is Jay Bentley from Bad Religion. This is Vinny from Less Than Jay. This is Travis from Coheed and Cambria. This is Chris number two for the band Anti-Flag. Hey, this is Ricky Rocket from Poison. This is Pete Parada from The Offspring. Hey, this is Zach Blair from Rise Against. Hey, this is Eddie from the band Thrice. Hi, this is Frank Turner. Hey, this is Jim from Pennywise. Hey, this is Eric Smelly, the drummer of No Effects. Hi, this is Bill from Faith and More. Hey, this is Chris from Propagandy. Hi, this is Rory from No Use for Name. Hi, this is Ben Gilly. I'm Silverchair. This is Stefan from Descendants, and you're listening to That One Time On Tour with Chris Swinney. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, We've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.